Well, welcome back to our Q&A time. Uh, first question is, why doesn't the SDA church reach out to past members? Uh, I don't represent the SDA church. I would encourage you, and, and I have read things uh, from time to time about um, various activities designed to reach out to past members. So I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't say um, as a fact that they have no, no uh, programs to reach out. So I would encourage you, if you have that concern, uh, contact your local um, Seventh-day Adventist conference. You can type into your search engine whatever state you live in and address and, and find the local conference office and send them a message and ask, what, what, are, what are their active programs to reach out to past members and see what they say? Uh, I, I couldn't speak for them. So, In review of the fall, uh, there was a slight discussion regarding whether Adam and Eve and angels understood the meaning of death. Could it be that death, before anyone or anything went to the sleep death, was understood mainly uh, from God, um, separation from God, the source of life? Well, you know, uh, the scripture doesn't actually give us much insight at all, if you restrict yourself to the 66 books, of what angels were thinking and having the processes of, of things prior. Um, if you value the commentary Smell and White, she uh, describes that, in fact, the issue wasn't the, uh, th- that they die, it was regardless of how they died, which they would have died, explicitly, she says, if God would have let them reap the consequences of what sin would die, what God would not have killed them. However, the angels would have misunderstood the cause of death and serve God out of fear. So it's clear from those statements that, no, they would not have appreciated a natural result of sin, but would have misunderstood it, uh, death as an infliction uh, at that time, if you value those comments. Do we know what remedy God would have used if Adam had chosen to trust God and not choose to sin with Eve? Well, that's an interesting question. All speculation. We don't have any hard data on that. But there are some interesting uh, interesting thoughts that we could um, could look at regarding angels, uh, if you again value Ellen White's comment. First is Greek Controversy 495, and you might be able to infer something regarding what God would have done with Eve if Adam had stayed faithful. Uh, This is um, regarding Lucifer's rebellion in heaven. God in his great mercy bore long with Lucifer. He was not immediately, this is Greek Controversy 495, he was not immediately degraded from his exalted station when he first indulged the spirit of discontent, nor even when he began to present false claims before the loyal angels. What's the, uh, I believe, what's the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. So he's bearing false claims. Would this be sin? This is sin. He's sinning in heaven now, okay? Keep going. Long was, re- long was he retained in heaven. Again and again he was offered pardon on condition of repentance and submission. No death penalty. No substitutionary blood payment. Repentance and submission. Such efforts as only infinite love and wisdom could devise were made to convince him of his error. The spirit of discontent had never before been known in heaven. Lucifer himself did not at first see whither he was drifting. He did not understand the real nature of his feelings. But as his disaffection was proved to be without cause, Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong. that the divine claims were just and that he ought to acknowledge them as such before all heaven. This is a key. He was bearing false witness, didn't fully appreciate what he was doing, but he came convinced he was wrong and he needed to repent, acknowledge. Had he done this, he might have saved himself and many angels. He had not at this time fully cast off his allegiance to God. Meaning, 
he hadn't fully seared his conscience, hardened his heart, and destroyed the faculties that can respond to love and truth. He still had a sensitive aspect in his being at that point. Though he had forsaken his position as covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom, and satisfied to fill the place appointed him, I'll just take whatever place you have for me. I'll be janitor if that's what you want. I'm, I'm good with that. I was wrong. I made a mistake. Uh, you know what? It's okay. I'll be janitor. Uh, appointed, uh, the, fill the place God appointed him in his great plan. He would have been reinstated in his office. But pride forbade him to submit. He persistently defended his own course, maintained that he had no need of repentance, and fully committed, fully committed himself in the great controversy. So what do you hear described here? Unrepented sin does its work in the heart, mind, and character, eventually destroying within Lucifer the faculties that respond to love and truth, hardening him in selfishness and rebellion. And at some point when that happened, no further amount of conversation, truth, evidence, persuasion, love, compassion, had any redemptive value because his faculties that would respond had been eliminated by his fixed and persistent rebellion. So rebellion became fixed in his character, and there was nothing more that could be done to save him. This is incredibly important to recognize because you'll notice nothing in this description is penal legal. There's nothing penal legal going on here. You can present this, I presented this to people who hold the penal legal view and point out that he could be restored without a, he sinned? He could be restored without a blood payment. Sin doesn't require an actual punishment. Right here, Satan's own theory is overturned. He could be restored, no punishment. If he became righteous again, because it's about design law. It's about your kids have some sickness, and if the sickness is cured, they can do their old work again. But if it's not, and they get terminal, then they will die. Yes? So we know God came to save the species human. What about the angels? The, the, species, the species angels did not die. Only a third of them rebelled. Two-thirds of them stayed loyal. The angelic species was not taken in as a whole. Oh, okay. Many of them stayed loyal. They still had questions. So the point, no blood sacrifice here. It really, really, this, this paragraph really cuts the heart out of the penal legal model. If you really value this writing, some, and some don't. But why did Christ have to die for humanity? And angels could be restored with just repentance and submission. Why? And, and I think that can go to the question of Eve, if Adam had stayed loyal. Likely, Eve could have been restored with repentance and submission, without a blood payment, without the death of Christ. Let me read to you what she says in Zyra of 761. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position than that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as no other created being was given a revelation of God's love, understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. She's talking about after all those evidences and he became convinced and he wouldn't repent and his pride prevented him, that's when it became final. There was no more God could do to save him. Why? Because no further amount of love and truth have any impact on him. Notice about man, though. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God, he did not know. For him, there was hope in... 
a blood payment to assuage the fault. No. For him, there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. And in trust, open the heart and be reborn with new motives. That is it. Man's hope is not in a legal adjustment or a blood payment to an offended God to assuage his wrath. All that theory, all that teaching actually obstructs your ability to see the love of God and obstructs your ability to trust him. What you trust in is you trust in the payment to keep him from killing you. But you don't trust him. That's why you have the intercessor protecting and pleading. And how many Adventists in history have you known who live in fear of the future because at some point they'll have to live without an intercessor? And it scares them. Diagnostic. When you understand the healing model, the, 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 the reality of God's kingdom, Christ's intercessory work has never been with the Father. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world, he gave a son. So the intercessory work of Christ has not been with the Father. The intercessory work has been in sinners to intercede with what sin does in us, to remove the sin for us, to write his righteousness in, to write his law in our hearts and minds. And once he finishes his work and we're sealed in righteousness, we are then at one, this is atonement, bringing us, reconciling us back into unity with God. And when that happens... He doesn't have to do his work anymore. He can get out of the way so that we can have our fellowship and see him face to face again. So there's no fear. All right, next question. In some places, the Bible on white makes end-time events sound like total societal collapse, like when it is described as the worst time period in Earth's history. In other places, it sounds like everything will seem normal, just like before the flood, and people will be saying peace and safety. What is your understanding of the end-time scenario? Will it be total chaos or will things seem fine? Well, you have to actually understand when you're reading these various prophetic um, views where we are in the timeline and what they're describing. So uh, when it talks about, uh, let's see, Matthew 24, 36 to 39 reads, For no one knows the day of the hour, not even the angels nor the sun, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be coming in the days of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood... People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving a marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it would be with the coming of the Son of Man. Notice, things were normal until the door closed. This is representative of the close of probation. The close of probation. When probation closed and the four winds loosen and the Plagues come and all chaos happens. So the normality that, that the Bible describes in some places is the normality that happens prior to the close of probation. And then the time of trouble comes after the close of probation, at least the full time of trouble. There is indications in Scripture, and I advocate to it, that there is a slight loosening of the winds, but not a letting go that happens before the close of probation that really causes people to be a little unsettled to ask the questions, which is the shaking time. Okay? And the shaking time shakes people one way or the other out of their Laodicean sleep to make that commitment one way or the other. And they're sealed either to God or they're marked and sealed into the beastly system, one of the two. And then when all the people have been settled one way or the other, then the four winds loosen, the probation closes. And the closing of probation is all the hearts and minds choosing and settling in which, which method or which law they prefer to practice and how they treat others. They prefer the law of God where we love others and we will sacrifice to help others. We prefer the law of the world, survival fittest, I love me and I will hurt others to protect me. 
and you see the world settling. You saw it in COVID. COVID was a shaking time, folks. The four winds have not loosened. Probation is not closed. COVID was a shaking time. And I have seen many people in my practice, they talk about their families, who were shaken into the beastly system. They settled into a hardened heart where it's righteous to coerce and mandate other people to protect themselves. And you see it on TV. It's advocated strongly. It's righteous to force you to put something in your body that you don't want, and it might even harm you, but we'll do it because it'll help protect me. That's the belief. Whether it does or not, it's not important. The motive is selfish. It's not loving. These hearts are hardening. They're settling into the beastly system. This was a shaking. We're going to see more of this type of stuff happening. And we have to choose which law will we practice and how we treat others. Let me go back to the questions. I'm preaching too much here today. <laughs> Recently, the psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett, a highly respected emotional researcher at Northwestern University, published an essay in the New York Times titled, When is Speech Violence? She offered support from neuroscience and health psychology uh, research for students who want to use the word violence in this expansive way. She basically says that challenging, negative, challenging and negative words can have psychological impact by producing stress, activating your stress circuitry, increasing cortisol levels, uh, affecting the health of the individual. And because it has a physiological effect, therefore, it should be considered a form of physical violence. Uh, kind of lends to the whole hate speech argument. What is your view of this and its possible ramifications for our message? Um, This is fraudulent. It is a lie of Satan. It is perverse. It is corrupt. It is not truth. It's pseudoscience. It's contrary. This, this, This is straight out of the pits of hell. I'm not kidding you. When Nathan went in to confront David after David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he told him the story and then said, you're the man. David's stress circuitry fired. His cortisol levels went up. He went into serious increased heart rate, anxiety, couldn't sleep at night, went into a conviction of guilt, shame, some period of time as he is wrestling out the Holy Spirit's conviction of his heart, until repentance came. This woman would say Nathan violated David and assaulted him violently, and Nathan should be in prison for that. This is exactly the corruption of Satan. People living in obvious, destructive patterns of living, sinful things, exploitive of others, and if anybody that loves them comes to them with a message for them to repent, it will stress them. And this woman would want the people living in their sinful, destructive lives to never be confronted with truth that would upset them. Remember what Jesus said? Those who live in darkness don't want to come into the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. This is part of Satan's corruption to give a justification for censoring and silencing anybody who comes with a message of God and truth. It's evil. Can I say that any stronger? Yes, this woman would have shut Jesus down. Just like those who crucified him. Exactly. Uh, The apostle said, your your speech is offending them. What you just said is offensive. Their cortisol levels went up. They got stressed. 
Uh, in Romans 14, Paul says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. And I will hear Christians use this verse when it comes to things like Sabbath, diet, eating pork, alcohol, smoking, gambling, tattoos, whatever. Uh, things that I personally think are, are already clear in the Bible. Or they will say, God has convicted me of this, or he's convicting you of, of it, then you should do it, but it's not convicted me of it. Is it right, uh, is it, is it right and wrong? Isn't, is right and wrong a matter of coming to your own conclusion on what scripture says, or is scripture pretty clear on things that we should abstain from? So, people who use this text in this way, it's very simple to just, first off, Paul is absolutely correct. Whether it's the Sabbath, whether it's the food you eat, the persons who's telling you that every person is persuaded in their own mind, and if they're not persuaded, they're not going to do it, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. If you're not persuaded that the seventh day is the Sabbath, then you shouldn't observe the seventh day Sabbath. Because to do it, I'm not persuaded, but if I don't, then this girl that I'm dating, she will break up with me and we won't get married, so I'll worship on the Sabbath with her so that she'll marry me. That's never happened to anybody, has it? And then what happens after they're married? He stops worshiping on Sabbath. And there's all types of problems in their home. He should have never worshipped on Sabbath if he was not persuaded in his own mind. Same thing with the food choices. Uh, Paul's not dis- telling us that your, your, your viewpoint determines right and wrong. What he's telling you is that truth does no one any good to observe it if they don't believe it. If you're doing it under some other pretext, but you don't believe it's actually right, it'll actually breed the character of a rebel. You'll harden against it. That's what happens. And so if you want to cut to the chase on this, that people want to use this, to, to, and they're using it to try to say, see, it doesn't really matter, this, and they use this as a, as a barometer to tell what's true or not true, it's just up to you. No, just ask the, this. If they're a Christian, which I assume they are if they're using this text, just say, um, would you say it's important to accept Jesus as our Savior? And they will say yes. And would you say that would be important for every person to fully be persuaded in their own mind that Jesus is their Savior? And they will say yes. And then you go... Does that mean then, um, because we have to be fully persuaded, that it's, it's just up to the person? Fully persuasion doesn't determine whether it's required or not. It just means it has no benefit if they're not fully persuaded. Jesus dying as our Savior is a reality that's required for our salvation. But unless you're fully persuaded in your own mind of that, it does you no good. And that's what this is saying. Uh, you can do whatever you want, but if you're, if you're not actually applying truth to your life, you're not going to grow. And if you do the right thing, but you believe it's the wrong thing, you'll actually damage yourself. Uh, do you by uh, any chance have an idea of how long women in the Bible breastfed their babies? Uh, I've never read any scripture along those lines. Uh, so, uh, no, I have no... Uh, and you could argue the theory a couple different ways. You could argue the theory that uh, they would want to get them off as quick as possible because of the resource restrictions and, and the number of kids that they were having. Uh, every nine months, they're probably popping out a new one, and they got to move them off to get the next one on. Okay. Because <laughs> there's no birth control. You can make that argument. You can make the argument that there wasn't a lot of food, so they, it was only food for the baby, so they fed them longer. To get, I mean, there's, it's just all speculation. 
I've read your blog on whether or not we should uh, keep the feast days. I have a friend who believes we have to keep the feast days based off the text such as this one, Exodus uh, 12, 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh through your generations. You shall keep this feast by an ordinance forever. He gets very stuck on the term forever, and God never changes. Therefore, it's sin not to keep that term. What's your thoughts on this? Well, uh, he misunderstands the biblical use of the term forever. Uh, if, if that's what his hang-up is, then do a little research, look up forever in Scripture, and find many places where forever and eternal and everlasting uh, don't mean what we think it means about time. What it primarily means in Scripture is until the job is done. It will continue until the task has been completed. So a slave could be a slave to someone forever. That doesn't mean when Jesus comes they're going to continue to be a slave it was as long as they lived, they could, they could be a slave, as long as they lived. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah was burned with what kind of fire? Everlasting. Everlasting fire. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? No, it burned until it did its job. It was complete. Uh, and this is why uh, there is no concept of eternity in the forever language in, in the biblical culture. They did not understand time that way at all. The forever terminology was about completion of the task. And so these feasts would be, would, would be continued until the task was complete, and that was when Christ came and he died at Calvary. The symbolic system completed its task, and it continued forever until it was no longer needed, and it's no longer needed now. So that, if he's hung up on that, then you do your, your word search on that. Could the scapegoat represent Jesus? A friend tells me it does because uh, Jesus is the one who separates us from our sins. I know Ellen White says Satan is the scapegoat, but I'm not sure how to answer uh, this friend who says that everything in the sanctuary service represents Jesus and that the two uh, goats represent the two, two things Jesus does to take away our sin. He is sacrificed, and then he takes away the sin forever. So uh, this is uh, the Adventists are one of the few that teach the scapegoat is, is Satan. Um, most teach that um, that the scapegoat represents Jesus for the reasons you've described here. I don't take that view uh, because um, the idea of the scapegoat, uh, if you remember, the scapegoat leaves the camp and never returns. Uh, if you're going to make the object lesson work, it's not that sin is being taken away simply. The one who takes it away never returns to the camp. And so those who want to teach this would have to teach that Jesus won't be in heaven. He died on the cross and he was not resurrected. He was gone for all eternity to take away our sin. Uh, that doesn't work for me at all. Uh, so it makes much more sense in the uh, context of understanding the great controversy that, in fact, um, Satan, is, as I described in the lesson today, what is placed on Satan's head, and by the way, it goes back to your design law imposed law view. Those who have the imposed law view interpret the ceremony of the sanctuary as actually taking away acts, recorded acts of sin, bad deeds that we've confessed that have been removed by the grace and righteousness of Christ, all that responsibility for the sins of the righteous now, and all those sins are placed on Satan, and this is why Satan will suffer longer in the fire, because he not only suffers for his own sins, he suffers for all the sins of the righteous who are put back on him. And this is why he works so hard to keep you in sin, because he didn't want to suffer for your sins. He only wants to suffer his own. Okay? It's all corrupt. It's not true. What's placed on Satan... Is, is the blood sprinkled seven times in the most holy place. The blood represents the truth and the life of Christ. And what's in the box? 
Remember the, the, the covenant box, the lid represents Jesus, the solid gold lid, Jesus. The angels on top represent the righteous heavenly beings. The Shekinah represents the Godhead. But below the lid is a box that was made out of porous wood, wood that had holes in it, but it's all covered in gold, and all the defects are filled with gold. Gold symbolically represents purity or the righteousness of Christ, okay? Pure gold. And the box, it represents the saved, the hearts and minds of the saved. Now, what went in the box? First thing that went in the box, what was the first item to go in the box? Manna. Manna went in first. And Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. Let's come down. Okay? So the, the saved first must partake of Christ. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part. So we partake of Christ. The truth of him wins us to trust. That's the first thing that goes in. The manna goes into our heart. Jesus goes in first. And when Jesus goes in, the truth, the word made flesh that we partake, we open the heart and trust. And the next item went in was? The law. I will write my law on your hearts and minds. We get a new heart and right spirit because we've partaken of Jesus and one to trust. We open the heart. The spirit comes in and takes the victory of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. His law, his methods of truth, love, freedom, his principles become our principles. And we live his life. And then doing that, having been one to trust because we've partaken of the word, Jesus, having had the law written in our heart and the spirit dwelling there, reproducing Christ's likeness within, we who were dead in trespass and sin, Aaron's rod that budded goes in third, we who are dead in trespass and sin come to life and bring about peaceable fruits of righteousness. And then the, uh, and then the atonement then, what's happening there, he sprinkles his blood seven times. Seven is... The perfect number, the completion, the finalization, the healing, the securing, the sealing. And thus the righteous are sealed and have conviction and certainty of the truth and righteousness of God's character and have the uh, source and cause of sin and death understood to be originating with Satan. So all the responsibility and all the pain and all the suffering, all the source of death is put back on Satan in the minds of all the righteous we're settled and sealed. And that's what Jesus takes, and he cleanses and removes all of this mistrust, distortion, falsehood that Satan has told about God. You put this together with what it says in Thessalonians about the man of sin. Who's the man of sin? Ultimately, it's Satan and his agents on earth. And they, what's the man of sin do? Sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This was after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Paul says the man of sin is going to come. The second coming won't happen until the man of sin comes. He's fully exposed. And that man of sin is going to come and set himself up in God's temple and proclaim himself to be God. Well, is, is Paul saying that, that Satan's going to ride up into heaven and knock Jesus out of his throne up there and start reigning in the heavenly courts? No, he was cast down. He's restricted to earth. This is not the heavenly temple that's being talked about where, where he's going to set himself up in. What temple is it? The spirit temple. Satan set himself up in the hearts and minds, gets the whole world to drink his intoxicating wine. And what's the intoxicating wine? That the whole world has drunk, whether they're Christian, pagan, evolutionary, godless, Eastern mystical, Muslim, Jewish, it doesn't matter. The whole world has drunk this wine. Specifically, though. Some don't believe in God. There's one root lie 
Remember Ellen White's writings when she talked about what, what began the war in heaven will end the war. It's on the same issue, the same issue. A question over God's law. What we emphasize in here, if you have design law, you worship the creator, and that goes directly to character. If you have imposed law, though, the idea that God makes up rules and has to enforce them by punishment in order to achieve justice, that's the way to justice. The entire world believes that view. You get justice in communist countries with more law. You get, you get justice in Islamic countries by enforcing the, the, the Shia laws. You get justice in America by getting your politicians elected and in office so they can put the laws in place and enforce them that you believe are right. That's how you get justice. The whole world is drunk on this wine. They're intoxicated. The, the whole human race has been infected, and the Christian church taught this, this papal Roman infection, and the reformers rejected some of the practices of the papal church, the Roman church, but they've never fully thrown off the imperial law lie. That's why the Adventist church was called into existence. Its purpose as the people was the three angels' messages, which is to call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. Call back to creator worship, whose laws are the laws that reality operate upon, and transgressing those laws destroy the sinner. So Ellen White wrote, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for a sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon itself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to transgress again, and the sure result is ruin and death. Wages of sin is death. Death when sin when full grown brings forth death. This is the reality. And this is the message for this time. And thus, when we accept and understand this message, the blood of truth that Christ revealed is cleansing our minds, and we're putting the responsibility back upon Satan, the scapegoat. That's what I think is happening. I often wondered from the beginning of COVID if it was a man-made poison disguised as something else with all of the new studies and stories, theories are going around. Is it possibly snake venom? Do have you? Yeah, okay. So there's a video going around by a, a very well-renowned or known um, chiropractor that's got a big business in running his uh, natural remedies. And, uh, and he has put together a bunch of data points that are from scientific literature uh, that are making the suggestion that COVID is uh, certain snake venoms and venom poisons that were um, uh, created in a lab and released in, in, in various water sources around the world to create the symptomology. And some of the treatments, like remdesivir, is also based off snake venom and, and is what actually causes toxic problems to certain organs and kills them. And, and he's making this, this case. I watched the video. And my view is that his case is interesting, but it's presented very much like one of those um, hysterical TV programs about aliens in the, in, the, uh, in the designs in the wheat fields. 
um, that, uh, that you, you, you make a suggestion by circumstantial linkages and implication, but you never actually prove your case. And so I would, I would not present this material the way, the way it is at, at time. I think it's reasonable. I think he's presented enough evidence for an actual scientific investigation of the question to actually test it out and prove it one way or the other. That's a reasonable thing to do. But I certainly wouldn't go forward and make the case at this point with this level of evidence that that's what's happening. I think it's more conspiratorial and, and hysterical than it is science at this point. You said that we need to be changed and become transformed to be able to join God when Jesus comes back, which makes sense. As Adventists, we believe we are taught that in some, if someone cries to God to, for sin's forgiveness uh, at the last minute, we are forgiven and have the hope to see the person at the resurrection. How can we understand this, and is it even true, uh, if throughout our lives we didn't live to be changed and transformed. So I can never judge someone else's circumstance, heart, and where they are in their journey. Uh, we have evidence of the thief on the cross who accepted Christ at the last minute uh, being saved. Uh, we have stories uh, and, uh, of others who, uh, in death circumstances, Ellen White actually describes the case of being on a ship, and the ship was threatened with sinking, and all people were falling on their knees and praying and giving God their life, and they would change their life if they were just saved. And the, and the ship made it to shore, and they were back to partying within minutes that they got to shore. And, that these, and, and so it is it isn't about the actual uh, verbal confessions. It is about whether the heart actually changes or not. And evidently the thief on the cross had a genuine heart change, and had he lived, he would have begun the journey of, of, of personal growth and maturing, uh, whereas uh, some of the people who make these confessions are making confessions only out of fear with no interest in transformation. So it's not about the last-minute confession. It's whether the heart changed, and we can't read the hearts. Uh, Lord, a man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Alrighty. Um, so let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for the truth you've given us. We ask that you will finish the work, seal us, settle us, perfect us in your character, that we can be loyal and faithful to you and nothing can shake us out of it. And, you, and we can be effective witnesses for you at this time in history, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.